Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 229. Today's big Bible question, how can we despise God's kindness and cause people to blaspheme him? So we're going to talk about the dangers of hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and moralism. So hello, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. Our passages for the day begin with 1 Samuel chapter 2 and the beautiful song of Hannah. Continue to Psalms 15 and 16, Jeremiah 40, and conclude with Romans chapter 2. Now, we almost talked about quite the moral quandary, but as I don't really feel confident in my answer either way, we will skip it. That said, though, I don't want to leave you curious. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what we almost talked about, just because it's such an interesting moral dilemma, and you decide what is right. In Jeremiah, the king of Babylon has attacked Judah and deported many of the citizens to Babylon, blinding the king and killing all of his descendants. They don't take all the Judeans away, however, leaving a remnant under the leadership of a Gedaliah, who seems like a pretty stand-up guy. Things are looking pretty good for the Judeans that aren't taken away to the Babylonians under the leadership of Gedaliah, but uh uh-oh, a commander named Yohanan has a message for Gedaliah. And we read about that in verses 13 through 16 of our Jeremiah passage today. Meanwhile, Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the armies in the countryside came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and warned him. Don't you realize that Balas, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, to kill you? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, son of Kareah, suggested to Gedaliah in private at Mizpah, Hey, let me go kill Ishmael, son of Nethaniah. No one will know it. Why should he kill you and allow all of Judah that is gathered around you to scatter and the remnant of Judah to perish? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, responded to Johanan, son of Kareah, Don't do that. What you're saying about Ishmael is a lie. Well, spoiler alert, it wasn't a lie. Johanan nailed it. A fact you will see very quickly when you turn to chapter 41 and the heading reads, Ishmael assassinates Gedaliah. So here's your moral question. Would it have been right and godly for Gedaliah to have approved Johanan's secret mission to kill Ishmael before he could kill Gedaliah? Would it have been right for Johanna to do it on his own? Now, does it make a difference if I tell you that Ishmael not only killed Gedaliah, but a bunch of other Judeans and Chaldeans too, and then he lures like 80 other guys in with deception when he pretends to be a messenger from Gedaliah, and he kills them too. So is it moral to kill a mass murderer before he murders anybody? Before he murders anybody. Would you fire up the old time machine if you got one and go back to 1934 and kill Hitler? Those are some real minority report style questions there, but that's not our focus today and honestly I don't know the right answer. If I was an advisor to King Gedaliah, I don't know what I would have said. Glad I wasn't. Instead, well I guess Gedaliah wasn't a king. He was just sort of a... uh, a leader, wasn't he? Well, anyway, we're going to talk today about how to, uh, we're not going to talk today, I should say, about how to despise God's kindness and make other people blaspheme him, but we are talking about how to not not despise God's kindness and make people blaspheme him. 
Don't you just love double negatives? Put another way, we're going to talk about a behavior, sadly common among those who claim Christ, that causes others to blaspheme God and can cause us to despise the riches of God's kindness. So we're going to talk about this behavior and how not to do it and how dangerous it is. Because Romans 2 is going to warn us of the awful consequences of judging in hypocrisy. These two behaviors aren't necessarily twins, but let's call them really, really, really close cousins. Close enough that we can talk about them both in the same podcast in the same way that Paul talks about them both in the same chapter. Now, I hope you note that I'm not going to say they're kissing cousins, because being a native Alabamian, I don't want to perpetuate stereotypes and all. And living 40-something years in Alabama, I never met a cousin who married another cousin, so there. Well, let's read Romans chapter 2 and discuss the awful behavior and sinful behavior of judging in hypocrisy. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each other, each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery... Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, 
will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So you see, judging is a big deal, especially when it's combined with hypocrisy. Putting together judgment and hypocrisy results in some sort of horrifying and odious foulness that just drives people away from Christ. And yet I see examples of it all the time on social media from those claiming Christ. And if I'm seeing it on social media, brothers and sisters, you better believe non-Christians are seeing it all the time on social media too. And they, they remember it. They mark it. They're influenced by it. When we judge others for unbiblical moral behavior and then either do the same thing or something like it, or, or, and here's the big thing that I see so much now, we cheerlead for those who do the same thing we are judging others for. I hope you know what I mean by cheerlead. In other words, we champion them, we cheerlead them, we lift them up as examples, and we, um, we put our full support behind them. When we do that kind of thing, and yet we ourselves commit the hypocrisy of doing something we judge others for, or we champion people who do things we judge others for, we're engaging in some form of hypocritical judgmentalism, and we're shoving people away from the gospel as hard as humanly possible. I think Romans 2.24 has to be one of the scariest sins in the Bible. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And brothers and sisters, some of our behavior and some of the people and causes that we support wholeheartedly and full-throatedly is causing the Gentiles, it's causing the non-believers to blaspheme. We don't want this to happen, so how do we live? How do we avoid the horrors of judging and hypocrisy? Well, I want to read to you a great illustration from Pastor Tim Keller. He says this, In the 1990s, a woman named Wendy Kaminer wrote a devastating critique of the self-help movement, and the name of her book was I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. It's a tremendous critique, but basically, she shows how narcissistic the whole idea was. She says, how in the world can you say this is a mental health to say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, Yet out there in the world, there is all the blood of the innocent crying out from the ground for justice. There's genocide. There's terrorism. There's racism. There's all this awful stuff. How in the world can you say it's the sign of mental health to go out into the world and say, hey, everybody's okay. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. She says, that's silly. That's narcissism. She just hilariously deconstructed it. And about 10 years later, after she really showed how silly it is to say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, she came back with another book that showed she was in a bit of a bind because her whole point was, hey, with all the injustice, with all the innocent blood crying out from the ground for justice, how can you say everybody is okay? And she came back with another book in which she was very critical of what she called the hard right because she saw a lot of people saying, Yes, there is terrible evil out there, and we have to bring back the death penalty. We have to go to war. She suddenly saw all these people saying, I'm okay, but the rest of you are in no way okay. In fact, that was the subtitle of her book. Um, I'm okay, and you're nowhere near okay. She says the trouble with that, she says, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, was narcissistic. 
That's narcissism. But to say, I'm okay and I have the truth, but you're all evil and I'm going to punish you, that's how we get death camps. That's how you get things like, I'm the superior race, you're the inferior race. I'm the superior person, you're the inferior inferior person. She calls that moralism and she says it's as bad as narcissism. Narcissism is, we're all okay, you're okay, I'm okay. And moralism is, I'm okay, but you're not okay. So wait a minute, she was just saying, I'm okay, you're okay. everybody is okay as narcissism, but then moralism is bad. What's left? Well, there's masochism, which says, I'm not okay, but everybody else is. And of course, that's not right. What's left, says Keller? Well, in the 1970s, there was a minister and a great Bible teacher who has now passed away named John Gerstner. He was speaking and he referenced the best-selling book, I'm okay, you're okay. And he says, how does that compare to the message of the Bible? Then he told a story. It was about the fact that he and his wife were on a trip to Asia. They were in Kashmir, and at one point they went on an excursion in a little boat. It was he and his wife and a boatman who didn't know a whole lot of English and his grandson. On their way back from the excursion, as they were starting to near shore, they actually bumped another boat. When they bumped the boat, there was a fair amount of water that kind of splashed in and got everybody wet to up to the knees. Now the boatman started getting very, very agitated, and John Gerstner said to him, It's okay, it's okay, it's just a little bit of water. It's all right, we're okay. Don't get upset, we're okay. A couple of minutes later, though, the man was still getting even more agitated, and John was thinking he was very superior to that man. He said in his mind, this poor man either had an ego problem or something. And so he said again, don't worry, we're okay. Then finally, as they got almost to the dock, the man got really agitated and John Gerstner repeated, we're fine, we're okay. The man looked up at him and said, you not okay, I not okay, and pushed them out of the boat onto the dock, threw his grandson, jumped up onto the dock, and at that moment the boat was sucked down into the water and came up about six boats to the right on the other side. It turned out there had been a hole in the hull. The boatman had seen it, John Gerstner had not seen it, and if he had stayed in there one more second, they would have gone down with the boat. Gerstner said, I realize that's the message of the Bible. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Do you realize what this means? It's not the moralism of saying, I'm okay and you're in no way okay. It's not the narcissism that says, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody is okay. Not when there's so much injustice out in the world and not when there's so much dysfunctionality out there. No, the Bible says, what the Bible says is we're all sinners. We're all lost. Nobody has the right to look down at anybody else. We're all in trouble. We're all alienated from God. No one has the right to be trampling upon or exploiting anyone else. We all need we all need God. I'm not okay. You're not okay. And if you don't know that, you're going to go to the bottom of the lake. That's what's so unique about the gospel. There really isn't any other position like that, and it's the right one. I'm not okay. You're not okay. I'm no better than you. Yet in Jesus Christ, I'm a beauty when God sees me. I'm beautiful. As a result, I don't judge anybody because God is the judge. When somebody wrongs me, I leave that to God and I forgive them. I don't even judge myself. Oh, how bad I am. No, I don't do that, as Paul says, because I've been judged in Jesus. Don't you see that at the center of your life ought to be Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the earth, but the judge who was himself judged? 
If you bring into the center of your life the judge of all the earth who was judged in your place, you have a healthy respect for moral absolutes and you know there's right and there's wrong and you know there's injustice. You know it's important to seek justice. You know it's important to be a good person and a morally upright person and deal with people well. On the other hand, though, you are not judgmental towards people. You forgive other people. You're not down on yourself, judging yourself when things go wrong. Oh, the uniqueness of the gospel, the uniqueness of the Christian life. Bring the judge who was himself judged in your place into the middle of your life. Amen. So friends, the gospel is, apart from Jesus, you and I are not okay and helpless and and as far away of from okay as we can be. And we weren't saved by our own merits. We didn't rescue ourselves. So there's no moral superiority there. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation and you are following him and not doing horrible things. Does that make you morally superior to others? No, you've just been given a new heart by what Jesus has done. So there's no place for judgmentalism. There's no place for hypocrisy because we're saved by grace, through faith, by Jesus, not by ourselves. So ponder that message, dear friends, as we continue reading in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. And there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly. Or let arrogant words come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. And Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, or cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for himself, yourself. The servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I will take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him 
when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord had paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions among the people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord... Who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father, since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says, Didn't I reveal myself to your forefather's family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers' family all the Israelite food offerings. Why then do you, all of you, despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefathers' family would walk before me forever, but now this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. For those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefathers' family so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel, and no one in your family will ever again reach old age." Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that you will come to you, that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. Well, amen. That's rough stuff. By the way, one thing about 1 Samuel 2, meant to mention earlier, the song of Hannah, the prayer of Hannah, is so very similar to Mary's Magnificat. So go look that up. Go look up Mary's Magnificat. And just see how similar the two are. And I think what's going on there is that Mary was a woman of God's word. Um, she's not, I'm not saying she's copying the prayer of Hannah. I'm saying she was intimately familiar with it and she prayed in a way that was informed by it. And it shows what kind of person was. She was intimately familiar with the word of God. Jeremiah chapter 40 verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, captain of the guards, released him at Ramah. When he found him, he was bound in chains with all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guards took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God decreed this disaster on this place, and the Lord has fulfilled it. He has done just what he decreed, because you people have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed him. This thing has happened. 
Now pay attention, today I am setting you free from the chains that were on your hands. If it pleases you to come with me to Babylon, come and I will take care of you. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, go no further. Look, the whole land is in front of you. Wherever it seems good and right for you to go, go there. When Jeremiah had not yet turned to go, Nebuzaradan said to him, Return to Gedaliah, son of Achaicum, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the cities of Judah, and stay with him among the people, or go wherever it seems right for you to go. So the captain of the guards gave him a ration and a gift and released him. Jeremiah therefore went to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and he stayed with him among the people who remained in the land. All the commanders of the armies that were in the countryside, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, over the land. He had been put in charge of the men, women, and children from among the poorest of the land who had not yet been deported to Babylon. So they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. The commanders included Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Cariah, Sariah, son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephi, the Netophethite, and Jetsaniah, son of the Makathite, they and their men. Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore an oath to them and their men, assuring them, Don't be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well for you. As for me, I am going to live in Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who come to us. As for you, gather wine, summer fruit, and oil, place them in your storage jars, and live in the cities you have captured. When all the Judeans in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and all the other lands also heard that the king of Babylon had a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah son of Ahikam son of Shaphan over them, They all returned from all their places where they had been banished and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah and harvested a great amount of wine and summer fruit. Meanwhile, Johanan, son of Cariah, and all the commanders of the armies in the countryside came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and warned him, Don't you realize that Balas, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, to kill you? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, son of Cariah, suggested to Gedaliah in private at Mizpah, Let me kill Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he kill you and allow all of Judah that is gathered around you to scatter and the remnant of Judah to perish? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, responded to Johanan, son of Cariah, Don't do that. What are you? What you are saying about Ishmael is a lie. Well, it wasn't. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue? Who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor? Who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord? Who keeps his word, whatever the cost? Who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent? The one who does these things will never be shaken. Psalm 16, verse 1. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have nothing good beside you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their fruit, their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. 
I always let the Lord guide me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Yes, Lord, in your presence is the fullness of joy. We thank you for that. We rejoice in that. Lord, bless all who are listening today. In Jesus' name, Godspeed, friends.